Let's pray together. Father, we do want you to show us Christ until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. That is our prayer. And where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. So we come to you and pray again for you to open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we'll ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over a year ago, I visited a church where a husband and a wife serve as co-pastors of the church. And on the particular Sunday that I visited, it just so happened that the, the wife was the one who was preaching that morning. And so if you're a member here at Kenwood Baptist Church, it, you know our doctrinal position concerning female pastors. And you know that we believe the Bible says that the pastoral office is for qualified men only. And so her, I thought her presence in the pulpit was already evidence of a, of a certain kind of biblical unseriousness, indeed an, an error. And I wish I could say that the fact of the female preacher was the only problem, but, and that the message was, was otherwise sound, but, but it wasn't like that at all. Her delivery of her message was, was more focused on kind of being folksy and trying to be funny, jokey. Wasn't really any careful attention to the biblical text. And her message was based on John chapter 2 where Jesus shows up at the wedding feast and he performs his first miracle, turning the water into wine. And in her account of John 2, she noted that Jesus' mother had to come to him and tell him that the wedding feast was out of wine. And when Jesus responded, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' words at that point were an expression of his reluctance to move out into the future that God had planned for him. And so this mother, Mary, had to give him a little nudge. And so her point was this. The, the preacher's point was this. She said, don't let the potential for failure overshadow the possibility for promotion. Jesus was hesitant to step into his ministry, but the direction of his mother helped him to perform his first miracle. You think about that for a second. That's not just a little bit bad. That's a, that's a lot bad. Jesus was unable to move forward in ministry. Wasn't sure if he should go out into the future that God had planned for him. That's not what John teaches. This church had multiple services, and, and the preacher got sick, I think, or something in between services, and so they had to call some other junior staff member from the church to come in and, and fill in for the second service. And the first preacher, the female preacher, they projected her sermon notes on the back wall so she could read them. And so they just projected them up there again for the next guy. And he had never seen the thing until that morning, and he just got up there and just preached her message. And so all of the error that was there for her message was there again, and he hadn't even seen it until that morning. Now, I don't think either one of those preachers probably set out intentionally that morning to teach 
something that was unorthodox. But neither did they give any evidence of any real effort to rightly handle the word of truth. The focus was on being sort of funny and warm and folksy and lovable. But there's no focus on a serious exposition of the text of Scripture. But what I witnessed at that church that morning, it, it was egregious. But I don't think it was really that out of the ordinary. There are many pulpits that are filled week in and week out by preachers who make very little effort to understand to, and to explain and to apply the Bible. Now, you can go around and you can find some churches that you'll visit and you can tell that the preacher is kind of just mailing it in week after week. It's lifeless moralizing with very little engagement with Scripture. And the messages are kind of, they're not just Bible free, they're just boring. And there's not many people there and the, church, the churches are dying. You'll find other churches where the preachers have great eloquence and charisma they're the kind of speakers who, have, um, who can mesmerize and entertain a crowd. And when they do that, they do it well, and they do it with enough proof texts from the Bible that no one notices that they're not even really preaching the Bible. Isn't that weird that that happens? He's referring to the Bible, but he's not really teaching the Bible. The focus is on the oratory and the stories and they put the Bible on the, screen, on the screen in bits and pieces to prop up whatever hobby horse the preacher happens to be riding that day. And what happens is when preachers use the Bible without teaching the Bible, God's people grow weak and they grow undisciplined and they grow undiscerning over time. And they don't even notice when their female pastor perpetrates a blatant Christological heresy during their Sunday morning worship. That's what happens over time when people don't rightly handle the word of truth. I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verses 14 to 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 to 26. I, I don't want to sound like I'm pointing to some, some examples of error, but I think we need to be humble about these things. Because this is something that we all have to be vigilant about, right? All of us have to be vigilant about rightly handling, the word, rightly handling the word of truth or else error could creep in. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is exactly the kind of error that Paul is warning Timothy to avoid. Chapter 1, Paul had told Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel but to be ready to suffer for the gospel. The first half of chapter 2, which we did some uh, a month or two back, Paul told Timothy to entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach other people. And now in this passage, in verses 14 to 26, he exhorts Timothy about how the Lord's servant, the pastor, should handle the truth of the gospel. And his instruction about handling the truth unfolds in, in basically three steps, which roughly corresponds to the paragraphs that you'll see in the ESV. He talks about accuracy in the truth. In verses 14 through 18, he talks about discipline for the truth in verses 19 through 21. And he talks about correction to the truth in verses 22 to 26. So let me say that again. Accuracy in the truth, 
verses 14 to 18, discipline for the truth, verses 19 to 21, and correction to the truth in verses 22 to 26. So first of all, accuracy in the truth. Everybody look at verse 14. Paul says this, Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now, the first question we have to ask when we look at this is, who is the them that he's talking about when he says remind them of these things? Who is Timothy supposed to be reminding and what is he supposed to be reminding them of? It's possible, I suppose, that Paul could be talking about Christians in general, just remind Christians in general, people in the congregation, about these things. But the focus, really, if you look at the passage, is on how their words affect hearers. And that probably means that he has in mind the teachers and the church leaders in mind. So when he says remind them, he's talking about remind the the teachers and the church leaders of a certain set of things. So he's probably referring back to verse 2 at this point. Remember verse 2 where he talks about handing on the faith to faithful men who will be be able to teach others also. He's saying remind them, those guys, of these things. What is it? He says remind them of everything really that you see in verses 3 through 13. All that gospel material that we looked at the last time we were in this passage. But he tells them not merely to remind them, but to command. He says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So he's telling that Timothy is supposed to tell the teachers and church leaders, don't quarrel about words. Remember the gospel, but don't quarrel about words. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this command is at first blush a little bit confusing How are they supposed to confront false teachers, which has been the focus of 1 Timothy? It's been the focus of of really 2 Timothy up until this point. How are the church leaders supposed to confront false teachers if they're not supposed to quarrel about words? Is it defending the faith against false teaching by definition a quarrel about words? So what's going on here? Well, the term that's translated as quarrel is this really little interesting little Greek term. It means, if I were to translate it very literally, it would be word war. Lago makan. Word war. Don't word war. And that term for word, lagos, is a word that occurs about three more times in this paragraph. Verse 15 talks about the teachers who are supposed to rightly handle the word of truth. Verse 17, their word, the word of the false teachers, will spread like gangrene. Verse 18, they have swerved from the truth, saying, and it's using the verb form of the word, word. Um, so, so the word, word, in this passage is, is used more than once, and it's referring to what is being taught, either by faithful pastors or by unfaithful false teachers. It's what's being taught at, at the church. But the term is not talking about hair splitting in this text. The definition, it's not talking about hair splitting about theological terms, okay? So when he says don't quarrel, he's not talking about, you know, you're arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. He's not saying, he's not warning about hair splitting. That's another conversation, maybe a good exhortation, but I don't think that's the focus here. 
He's not quibbling. The, the quibbling that he's talking about is not about nothing. In this case, the word war that he's talking about is a war on the word. Okay? It's a word war against the truth. And so it's a war on the word of God itself. And if that is true, then the people who are word warring, as it were, are the false teachers. The ones who are teaching against God's truth. And so that's why Paul tells Timothy, don't do that. So when he says don't quarrel, essentially he's meaning don't quarrel against the truth. That's what he means there. But what's he supposed to do? Verse 15, he's supposed to handle accurately the word of truth. Don't word war against the truth. Handle accurately the word of truth. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so rightly handling is this other interesting term that comes from um, a, a Greek word. I'm going to say a Greek word here, but you don't have to memorize it. Orthotomeo. Ortho, you recognize that prefix? Like our word orthodoxy, okay? Um, it, it just means that that word ortho just means straight, and the, the last part of the word means to cut. It's, it has, it's something like to cut a straight line. If you look at it, the word is used in the Greek version of Proverbs 3, 6, where it talks about God making our path straight, like cutting a straight path for us. So what the term means here is probably something along the lines of to cut a straight path, to guide the word of truth along a straight path, like a road that goes straight towards its goal, without being turned aside by wordy debates or impious talk. That's how one lexicon puts it. So handling the word of God rightly here means a fixed determination to stay on point, to explain and apply the word of God according to its meaning and intent. You don't swerve to the side to false teaching. You're cutting a straight path with the word of truth, and you're not swerving from that. And so Paul's exhortation then to Timothy is the exhortation for every pastor. Handle accurately the word of truth. And the word of truth here is certainly talking about the gospel. Anticipated in the Old Testament, but now being made known in Timothy's day through the preaching of the apostles. For us, made known in the New Testament. He's t Paul is telling Timothy and every other pastor that would ever stand behind a pulpit... Don't play fast and loose with God's revelation. You handle it with care and with accuracy. It's not okay for a preacher just to stand up and to say whatever pops into his mind. He is only to make known and to apply what God has said. He is a conduit of revelation, not his own revelation, of God's revelation, and he's proclaiming it. You come to, uh, if you ever visit some Southern Seminary, there's an inscription over the doorway of the main academic building, Norton Hall. And the inscription is written in Greek, and it is this verse. Handle rightly the word of truth. Why? Because that's what a seminary is for. It teaches men to rightly handle the word of truth, to teach them to stand before God's people and to herald for God's people, week after week, the mysteries of God. To fail in that ta task, to teach God's servants, 
to rightly handle the word of truth. To fail in that task is to fail in everything that a seminary is to be for because that's what pastors are supposed to do. But what's fascinating about this passage is that the main command of the verse is actually not handle rightly the word of truth. The main command is the beginning of the verse. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. That's the primary command of the verse, not the preaching part. It's the ultimate goal for a preacher. A preacher knows his primary audience whenever he preaches is God. God who hears and knows and who will judge every word coming from the preacher's mouth. And a godly preacher can live with a congregation or some church members who from time to time are disappointed in his preaching. He can live with that. But a godly preacher can't live with God being disappointed in his preaching. Sometimes you'll have to say things from the pulpit in faithfulness to God's word that aren't going to get you a bunch of attaboys. And people may not appreciate it or you for saying it. And you have to say it anyway. Because your main audience is God. And the success of preaching is measured not by how People respond, but by whether or not it's faithful to what God has spoken. And so a preacher's laboring and striving and working is all to preach in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to be ashamed before God. Earnestly, he says, strive to present yourself to God as an unashamed workman. So that means anybody here who's an aspiring preacher, don't ever forget that you stand before a congregation when you preach, but the response of that congregation is not the ultimate measure of your success. You stand before God. He will render the ultimate verdict about whether or not you are faithful. That verdict will all come down to whether or not you handled accurately the word of truth. And if you think you want to teach and preach to God's people, you need to get ready for a life of laboring and striving in the Word. If you don't want that life, you should not aspire to that work because that's what the work is. I know there's a lot of preachers that don't model that that's what the work is, but that's what the work is, laboring in the Word, to be faithful to it. It also means for the congregation, in the calling of pastors, don't ever call someone who cannot accurately handle the Word of Truth. Just because they're a good speaker or they got a good line of bull, don't call them just because they can do that. Don't ever call somebody for that reason who's just more interested in flattering you and entertaining you than they are in preaching the word of God to you. Don't do it. You hold out for a man who loves God, who loves God's people, who's humble, and who handles accurately the word of truth. That's what you hold out for. You demand it. Why? Look at the next command, verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. If you don't get that kind of a guy who preaches accurately the word of truth, you may get irreverent babble. Where does that go? Irreverent babble comes from a phrase that literally means profane 
vain talking. It's the, it's the godless talking that doesn't serve any good purpose. That's what it means. It's the word warring of the false teachers that he's been warning against. And he says that that kind of talk must be avoided at all costs. And he says it for a couple of reasons. If you don't avoid that, it's going to corrupt God's people. The irreverent babble coming forth, a regular diet of that will corrupt God's people. It will lead people into more ungodliness. It will make them more sinful. They will become unholy. And then in verse 17, the second thing is it kills God's people. It says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. The teaching of the false teachers spreads like a necrotic disease. It infects the body, destroys the tissue, and it spreads until it kills the whole organism. So you have to avoid this kind of teaching like the plague or else the organism dies. This says their talk will spread like gangrene. It just gets out of hand. People start believing false teaching until all of a sudden you've got spiritual death introduced into a church. And the gospel has been so compromised, people aren't being saved by it nor being sanctified by it. Well, it says their talk will spread like gangrene. Whose talk? The talk of the false teachers. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. And how would you like to go down in history as two of the guys who are the false teachers? Your name is only known for false teaching. We don't know much about Philetus, but we do know the name Hymenaeus from 1 Timothy 1.20, where he was already named as a false teacher. And Paul says in that verse that he had already handed him over to Satan so that he might learn not to blaspheme to speak wrong things about God. So Hymenaeus and Philetus are false teachers. What were they teaching? Verse 18. They've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now look at this. So God's servant, the faithful servant, is supposed to handle accurately the word of truth. What have they done? They've swerved from the truth. They don't come up and preach the Bible. They now have an allergy to the Bible. God's revelation is not the norming norm for them anymore. They're going away from it. And so they're far from handling accurately the word of truth. These two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, excuse me, they're teaching that the resurrection has already happened. Now, what he means by that is it's probably the case that they, what they were teaching is that, that we have already, that all the Christians at the church that they were serving, all those Christians have already been resurrected in a spiritual sense. And because all Christians have already been resurrected, they shouldn't be expecting some kind of a resurrection of their physical bodies at the end of the age. So there's no final judgment where, where the dead are raised. That's what, that's what they were teaching. So... What that means, if their teaching were right, it would mean that when you die, your spirit goes on forever, but your body does not. Your body gets destroyed. It's just dead. Now, it may be that they were basing that teaching on some things they'd heard Paul say. Paul says things like Romans 6.11, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with Christ. God raised us up with Christ already. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.12. 
having been buried with him in baptism, you have been raised with him through your faith and the power of God. So it may be the false teachers were actually taking some things they heard from Paul. And they were saying, look, Paul says we've already been raised. So here's the point. They may be using the Bible. They're just distorting the Bible, right? They may be using the truth, but then they're just distorting the truth until it's not truth anymore. Yes, Paul said that in one sense we've already been raised with Christ. It's true that we already are alive through the presence of the Spirit. But Paul also says in another sense we're not yet raised because our physical bodies are still corrupted by sin and subject to death. And that won't be reversed until the future. There's an already aspect to our salvation and a not yet part. And these false teachers are denying the not yet part. Which has horrible implications. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if you say there's no such thing as that resurrection, that's like denying Jesus' resurrection. And if you do that, your faith is useless. You're not a Christian. So this is a big deal, what Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying. And if you introduce that error into a church, what happens? It begins to kill the church. What have you just done? You've taken away future hope from sinners who are suffering. That's what you've done when you introduce that in. And people are going to die on the vine without that hope. It hurts Christians. It makes them ungodly. And it kills them in the end. But that error, you know what? It, it may very well have been something that they heard from Paul. Or maybe they heard from another apostle that they heard this idea of being raised with Christ. And then they, they, they twisted that teaching until it was, it was an error. And there's a lesson for us in that. Most of the time, false teaching has its appeal in the church, not because it doesn't use the Bible, but, but because it does use the Bible. False teachers use the Bible. It's a part of their appeal. And it's a part of what makes them deceptive. They use the Bible. They just distort what the Bible means in order to prop up some false idea. So keep this in mind. Congregation, whenever it comes to call a pastor, anybody here who wants to be a pastor, watch yourself here. It's not enough that a teacher uses the Bible. He has to handle accurately the word of truth. And there's many people who don't do that. And we're all called to know the difference. We don't play fast and loose with this. Do you think the prosperity preachers that Matt prayed against in our prayer time, do you think those prosperity teachers use the Bible? Yes, they do. Do you think they're often eloquent and charismatic when they speak? Yes, they are. Do you think they often gain a foothold among God's people for those very reasons? Yes, they do. And you've got to be able to spot them even though they're kind of scratching itches that you're feeling. You have to spot them in order to avoid their teaching because the teaching will kill the church. So Paul's addressing to Timothy the necessity for God's servant to have accuracy in the truth. You can't play fast and loose with God's Revelation. But the second thing he, noticed, he notes here is discipline for the truth. Look at verse 19. The second two points will be shorter. So for those of you who are watching the clock. Discipline for the truth. Verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands. 
bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You notice there that you've got two uh, parts of this verse that are in quotation marks. It's because Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. Paul says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Paul uses that term foundation elsewhere as a metaphor for the apostolic gospel. Go read 1 Corinthians 3. So the foundation is, is the gospel. The gospel is like a foundation because you build your life on it. It's the message that gives meaning and purpose to our lives, right? It defines how we live and relate to one another. But how sturdy can that foundation be if false teachers are in the church? Will the foundation stand if false teachers are always threatening the foundation? How sturdy is it? Paul says the foundation stands, and at the end of the, the day, the gospel is not going to be thwarted by false teachers, and the foundation will hold. How do we know that? Is it because of something that we will do? No, Paul says it's because of something that God will do. The text says the foundation stands because it has a seal on it. You see that? God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. A seal is a mark or an impression made by some sort of a, sig a signet, perhaps a ring. And so in those days, if you wanted to seal a document, um, you would put wax on it to make it closed and person might have a signet ring or some other marking that they could put their seal on it, and the seal shows ownership. And so the resulting inscription on that seal would show whose this is. And so there's a seal here that's invoked as a metaphor for God's guarantee of ownership over the foundation. And inscribed on that seal is not God's name, but God's promises. And he quotes, essentially, from Numbers 16, promises from God. How you know that the foundation will stand. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, what are those verses talking about? This is why we had um, the passages from Numbers 16 read before this, because there's a story in the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and were being led around by Moses there was a man named Korah who led a rebellion against Moses. And there were some other Levites who joined in. Was it enough for them that they were, they were uh, of the tribe of Levi and that they had uh, some sort of responsibility before God for the tabernacle and its furnishings? It wasn't enough. They were aspiring to be as Moses is, a prophet of God. And they wanted to people, people to look on them like they look on Aaron who was over the priesthood, who was offering sacrifices before God. God was mainly dealing with Moses and with Aaron. God spoke to Moses, and the people listened to Moses. And Aaron was Moses' mouthpiece. And so that Korah led a rebellion of 250 men against Moses and Aaron. And they say this to Moses, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly? Meaning, Moses, we hear from God just as much as you do. You claim to be giving God's revelation, but what we think is just as valid as what you're, what you're saying. 
They've completely made their own opinions and their own views on things as equal to God's revelation. Do you see what's happened there with Korah's rebellion? Moses essentially says, well, we'll see about that. God shows up. And God says, y'all get away from Korah and his people. You back up. If you don't back up, you're going to be destroyed with them. And so Moses, Aaron, and all the congregation of Israel backed off from Korah, and God opened up the ground underneath Korah, their households, and all the other rebels. The ground opened up, swallowed them up, and closed back over them. The congregation was saved from their error, and the congregation was cleansed from their presence. Even though there were false teachers in their midst, in the midst of Israel, they weren't going to threaten the foundation that God had already laid. Not because of anything that Moses and Aaron did, but because of what God did. The Lord knows those who are his. And he tells them the path of escape. And that path involves fleeing from evil. And so he quotes from 16.5 where it's said that the Lord knows those who are his and he makes a separation between the congregation and, and Korah. God knows how to tell the difference between those who are his people and those who are not. And he's telling Timothy and he's telling us that we need to be able to tell the difference. We have to be able to distinguish sheep from wolves. And just like God showed the congregation of Israel how to back away from Korah and his false teachers, he's telling us, the church, to depart from false teachers. The Lord knows those who are his. Flee from evil. You depart from them. That means that sometimes we have to call out false teaching. And we have to call it out for what it is, and we have to stand apart from it. Lord, help us. Let it not ever take root in our congregation. But if it does, we call it out and we separate. Paul uses an image to illustrate this. Verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. The great house is the Christian community in a broad sense. And he's saying that within the Christian community, there are some vessels for honorable use, uh, some for dishonorable use. He's not talking about the way things should be. He's talking about just the way things are sometimes. People creep into the church and they're false teachers. And so these vessels for dishonorable use, it's an image for the false teachers. And so wood and earthenware, earthenware vessels in that day were used um, for dirty purposes. Okay, They were dishonorable because they were used for garbage or for excrement. And they were sometimes thrown out with the garbage or the ex excrement. Sometimes they may have been kept used again, sometimes they're, they're thrown out. He's saying the false teachers are like this. They're like those dishonorable vessels. They're carrying filthy contents and they're at risk of being thrown out of the house altogether. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Children of Israel were commanded to separate themselves from Korah or share their destruction. This language is saying that God's people have to cleanse themselves from false teachers. Same thing. 
They have to put them under church discipline, as it were, if they come into the church. And if they don't repent, they have to be asked to leave. And they aren't given platform within the church. Why? Because otherwise they would compromise the witness of the church. See what he says there? If you cleanse yourself from that which is dishonorable, then you'll be set apart as holy and useful to the master of the house. If you don't cleanse yourself from false teaching, you won't be holy and you won't be useful for every good work. You will be weighed down by error. And you'll compromise not only your witness, but maybe even the witness of, of the church. If we want to be a, useful, a church that's useful to God for every good work, we have to be a disciplined church. And we have to rightly handle, handle the word of truth. And it starts in the pulpit and then it goes out into the congregation. <coughs> None of us is allowed to play fast and loose with the word. And what happens here is to be a model of what's happening everywhere in the church. So there's accuracy in the truth. There's discipline for the truth. We separate when there's error that won't be repented of. But then there's also correction to the truth. Because it's not just, when, it's not just the case that when false teachers rise up, you just kick them out. There can be correction and repentance. So look at verse 22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I preached a whole message on verse 22 several weeks ago. Go back and listen to that message, okay? I'm going to go straight to verse 23 where he says this. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. What's he talking about here? It's one thing to know that your people are wrestling with a particular false teaching, and so you come in and you confront it. It's another thing to give a platform to false teaching just because you like to have arguments. I'm not only your pastor, I'm also a seminary professor, which means I'm constantly involved in theological controversy. It's just kind of the nature of things. There's no end to theological controversy because there's always someone somewhere contending with sound doctrine. Just this past week, I've been uh, involved in this Trinitarian controversy that was mentioned earlier. I believe that's an important subject. I even think that it answers the answers to the questions that are raised in that controversy have practical implications for you and for me. But I also understand that many of you, maybe most of you, you're not seminary students and you're not thinking about the terms of that conflict at all. You're just trying to figure out how to raise your kids without having a nervous breakdown, okay? Um, and you are quite happy with believing in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity and you don't really want to have an argument about it. And so this is not something that's an issue for you. And if I were to come in here and to make an issue of something that's not an issue for most of you in the church maybe, I know there's a lot of seminary students, so we may be a little exceptional. But if I make an issue of some false teaching that's not an issue for you, and if I did that, I may actually give platform to false teaching that, that's not helpful. You're not even aware of it. And so when a false teaching becomes an issue for you, that's when it needs to become an issue for this pulpit. When a false teaching has threatened, um, has threatened to make no headway at all with you, to air out the polemics in this pulpit doesn't serve you at all. And it may potentially stir up strife where there was none before. You see what I'm saying here? 
That's why he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. I could, I could stand here in this pulpit and list for you all kinds of ignorant errors that have to do with the Trinity. But it, and, and polemicize against them to you. But is that helpful to you? At the end of the day, if it's not an issue for you that's threatening you, probably not. A wise pastor is not going to use the pulpit for hobby horse polemics. His bread and butter will be the exposition of Scripture. And the Scripture will set the table and the agenda. And he will engage in polemics whenever the flock needs it. Why am I making this point? If you love the fray just for the sake of the fray, that's not good. That's not a good thing for you. You have to love the fray for the sake of the flock. Why? Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You remember what Paul told Timothy about the character qualifications for an elder back in 1 Timothy? He said, an elder must be not addicted to wine, nor pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. Not pugnacious and uncontentious. If you're running around with a theological chip on your shoulder, just spoiling for somebody to knock the chip off of your shoulder, that's, that's just self-serving. That's not really not helping anybody. It completely forgets what God has called the pastor to do. It matters not only that you contend for the faith, but how you contend. Here he says you have to be kind, which means... You have to be kind when you contend for the faith, the faith, because if you're a jerk, nobody wants to listen to you. You have to be kind to all. The proverb says, sweetness of speech increases per persuasiveness. The wise servant of the Lord knows that. If you're going to be able to teach, as this text says, you have to get a hold of your tongue, which implies that you're, you're not just spoiling for a fight and who you can talk down to, you're trying to be kind, able to teach, you patiently endure evil, it says. Why? Because the point of controversy is not to avenge your personal slights. How many of you have ever heard a theological argument where it was clear it was more about the person's pride than it was about the truth? They just wanted to be right. All of us have felt that before, right? I have. You're in the wrong mode when you get into that mode. It's not about avenging your personal slights. People may say something rude to you. You've got to patiently endure evil. It's about defending the truth of God for the people of God so that the mission of God can go forth. It's not about us. It's about him and his gospel. And so there's another aim for controversy that won't even be on your radar screen if you're your radar screen if you're just trying to win an argument. And I'll finish with this. Verse 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But what does he do? He's kind, patient, able to teach, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Our first hope for theological opponents ought not to be that we could kick them out of the church. Our first hope ought to be that we could win them over to the truth. Right? And that we would humbly depend upon God to change them and transform them to that end. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil 
after being captured by him to do his will. And so Paul, he's basically given us three steps here. He's calling for the Lord's bondservant to have accuracy in the truth, for the church to have discipline for the truth, and for when there's theological controversy, to have correction towards the truth. Maybe God would draw people to repentance. Because here's the point. We have a message to proclaim. And our goal is not to be personally vindicated, but for that message to get out to sinners. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He's alive right now at the right hand of God. Anybody who believes in him and comes to him repenting of their sin in faith, the Bible says they will have eternal life and be saved. We have got to get that message out, and we've got to handle accurately the word of truth so that message will go forth from the church. And we are earnest about the truth because we're earnest about the mission of God and that people would know God. Father, I pray that you would help us to handle accurately the word of truth, that you would save sinners, that you would sanctify us, that you would forgive us for being pugnacious and for devolving into avenging personal slights. Help us not to be that way. Help us just to love you, love your people, to be humble and to be earnest to stand before you approved and unashamed. So, Father, I pray you'd do this work among us, and I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.